if you could pray only one prayer for this church, that is, you could only bring one request to God for our faith family, what would you pray? What would you pray? That's not an easy question, is it? I'm guessing all sorts of things are swirling around in your, in your mind right now. <laughs> Lots of options. Obviously, we're not limited to just one prayer or petition, are we? But I believe that kind of question is a good exercise. It's a good exercise that gets us thinking about what matters most as God's people. Keep that question in mind as we look together at Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. I've said before, Daniel's not a prophet. He actually was a prophet. He's called a prophet in Scripture, but he's not a prophet like the other prophets. That's the clarification I should add there. The other prophets were often sent by God to be able to warn the people about their covenant disobedience of what God might bring against them, judgment against them, as he promised them, or foretell blessing to encourage them maybe at different times. There was a kind of relationship between those prophets and the people, oftentimes those in power like kings over Israel or Judah, that those prophets interacted with them in those ways. Daniel's not like this. He's more of what we would call a seer, isn't he? He, he, he's, He's been given certain visions. Things are revealed to him at just the right time and just the right way that he's able to make a difference Uh, in terms of God's work among his people. uh, And of course, Daniel, God's work among the people in exile. As you may be able to tell by looking at this chapter in Daniel 9, most of Daniel 9 is composed of a prayer. Do you see that? It's a prayer prayed by, you guessed it, Daniel. Daniel. We won't read through the entire prayer this morning. Instead, I'd like to focus on the final three verses. That would be verses 17, 18, and 19. So the earlier verses of this prayer, everything leading up to verse 17, they're not difficult to summarize. Like a, just a constant drumbeat, if you read through those, Daniel is emphasizing the same thing over and over again in those verses. Starting in verse 4, Daniel is simply acknowledging that God's people deserved the punishment for their sins that God brought about. That's what it is. God's people deserved the punishment for their sins that God brought about and even warned them about through Moses hundreds of years earlier. That punishment that God brought about was, of course, being exiled being taken, removed from the land of their ancestors, what we call the promised land, as well as part of that punishment was the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem by the Babylonians. So, let's keep that in mind, that kind of lead up to verse 17. That is, let's keep in mind Daniel's spirit of repentance and confession as we look at these final three verses. Look at verse 17. This is Daniel's prayer. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant. Listen to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. 
Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Okay, two things I believe are fairly clear from this passage. First of all, take a look here on the screen. First of all, Daniel prayed passionately for the good of God's people. Daniel prayed passionately for the good of God's people. We could just stop right there and think about personal application. It's a good reminder, that simple phrase, isn't it? It's a good reminder for us to ask ourselves, how often do I pray for the good of God's people? Do I pray passionately for the good of God's people? And if I don't, what's, what's gripped by heart? What's distracting me from that? What's maybe you know, tamping down on that, that passion, that compassion, that heart for my brothers and sisters, for the people of God and the work of God. We want to be reminded by Daniel's example. If we just walked away right now and this was the end of the message, <laughs> that would be a great takeaway. Just to remind each other that God calls us to pray passionately for the good of his people. Amen? Whoa, wow. <laughs> Amen? Amen. Let's pray passionately like Daniel for the good of God's people. But let's unpack that because that's what God's given. He's given us more here. His heart, Daniel's heart comes through loud and clear, doesn't it? He is pleading with God here. He is pleading for his people in light of God's mercy. He's asking God to hear their cries. He's asking God to see their loss. He seeks both divine forgiveness and divine intervention. What kind of intervention specifically is Daniel praying for? Well, the main request is right there in verse 17. Look what he says. He says, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. Okay, to what is Daniel referring when he prays about God's sanctuary? What's he talking about there? Well, he's talking about the temple in Jerusalem, isn't he? That's the sanctuary that was presently desolate because of the Babylonian armies. He's praying for the temple in Jerusalem. But what's meant by this phrase he uses? Make your face to shine upon. Make your face to shine upon. What does he mean? Well, that phrase actually goes back. You'll see it on the screen here. That phrase actually goes back in Scripture all the way to Numbers chapter 6. It goes to that priestly blessing that's there. Undoubtedly, you've heard this blessing in one form or another. We've often used it in the past in child dedications, things like that. But this is where that phrase first appears in Scripture, in this priestly blessing. And all it really means, that phrase, is it's describing God looking favorably upon His people. It's just a Hebraic way of saying that. God looking favorably upon His people. One of the places, we find it all throughout Scripture, this phrase, but one of the places we find this phrase used repeatedly in, is Psalm 80. Three times in Psalm 80, this is what the psalmist writes. Take a look. There it is. 
Restore us, O God. Let Your face shine that we may be saved. Do you hear what He's saying there? He's saying, restore us. Look favorably upon us that it might result in our salvation, our rescue. Three times that's repeated through Psalm 80. Some version of that same phrase. And that salvation and restoration mentioned there are exactly what Daniel has in mind as he is praying. Salvation and restoration. But remember his specific focus here. It's spelled out in the verse that follows our main text. Look at verse 20. Drop down to verse 20 of Daniel 9. Look what he says. He says, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, that's the prayer, right? And presenting my plea before Yahweh, my God, for the holy hill of my God. So Daniel actually gets real specific there again and says, here's what I was praying for. I was confessing my sin. I was confessing the sin of my people. But I was praying specifically for the holy hill of of my God. What is the holy hill of my God? It had this name in scripture, Zion. Zion was the hill on which the temple was built. That was the name of that little, it's called Mount Zion. It's not really a mount, mountain, <laughs> right? But it, it, it's a, probably lovingly called Mount Zion. It, it was re- really a hill. And that's exactly what Daniel's praying for. So think about this. When Daniel prays, in a spirit of repentance and confession for the good of God's people, he is praying specifically for the restoration of the temple in Jerusalem. Isn't that interesting? It might not be how you and I would pray if we were praying for the good of God's people, but Daniel is leading us in this. He's teaching us in this. God is guiding us in this. Daniel is praying specifically for the restoration of that temple. Why is he praying specifically for that? Because that sanctuary uniquely represented two things. Forgiveness from and fellowship with God himself. That's where it all came together in the powerful, beautiful object lesson of the temple. Forgiveness from and fellowship with God. Forgiveness that made fellowship with God possible. It's where God promised to dwell among His people. I will put my name there, He said in the book of Deuteronomy. That's where I will dwell in your midst. I will be your God. You shall be my people and I will dwell in your midst. That beautiful three-part promise we see all throughout the Old Testament. Daniel is coming back to this idea. So what is Daniel ultimately praying for here? He's asking for the spiritual restoration of his people. Not just that they be restored physically or geographically back to the land of Israel. He's praying for that as well. Not that just the building campaigns would go really well. They'd get enough money. The workers would be motivated. Everything would get built the way that it was. Maybe even better with a few extra added amenities. He's not just praying for that. He's ultimately praying for the spiritual prosperity of being in God's presence. What did David say? I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God 
that I might dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David didn't want to dwell in the house of the Lord forever because it was such a beautiful building and had really nice amenities, like a you know, holy jacuzzi or something. The, the, the presence was really tasty. He was going to enjoy it. No, 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 no. It's because it represented the fact that God was there. He's talking about being in the presence of God in a radically wonderful and beautiful way. That's why he said that's where he wants to be. That's why he prayed and asked that God would keep him there forever and ever and ever. This is what Daniel is praying for. Restoration to the spiritual prosperity of God's presence. But it's also crystal clear here that number two, Daniel prayed ultimately for the glory of God's name. Daniel prayed passionately for the good of God's people, but Daniel prayed ultimately for the glory of God's name. Our main text flows from this statement at the end of verse 16. Look there at the end of verse 16. Your people have become a byword, literally a reproach among all who are around us. You belong to Israel, the Babylonians might say, or wherever they were living at this point. Right? This is, this is actually the time of the, the Persians ruling. So wherever they were living within the Persian Empire, you belong to Israel? <laughs> Scoff, mock, slander. Yeah. Oh, we've heard about your temple. How tall is it? Oh, it's about this tall, the rubble, right? The rubble's like this tall. You know, they would just, they would mockery, slander, scoffing. They had become a reproach among all who were around them, Daniel says. And that sad reality then leads to this therefore in verse 17, where we started this morning, verse 17. So the reality of their reproach among the people leads to the therefore, verse 17. But Daniel wants to make it abundantly clear in his prayer that his concern is not ultimately for God's people to feel better about themselves, to not have to endure this. He's not concerned about them feeling better about their reputation. No, his concern is with God's reputation. That's what Daniel's interested in. God's reputation. Verse 17, for your own sake. Verse 19, for your own sake. He emphasizes it. How are the people's welfare and the glory of God connected? Look at, look at the last phrase of verse 19. Because your city and your people are what? Called by your name. Called by your name. Our condition says something about you. It reflects you. Where we are now, we, we want to, we want you, your reputation and your fame to go out in a powerful way to show the excellencies of God. But look at our condition, our miserable condition right now. Daniel, because he... Israel was known. I mean, this goes all the way back, of course, to verse 15. If you look at the end of verse 15. O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as to this day. 
That's said throughout the, Old Te- the whole Old Testament, especially the story of when they're coming out of Egypt. Remember, uh, the word had spread about what Yahweh had done among the Egyptians, so much so that even Rahab up in Jericho knew the story. And she and the people in Jericho were terrified of the Israelites. Well, even down to Daniel's day, Israel was still known as Yahweh's redeemed people. There was still some knowledge of what he had done. And, and, and Daniel brings it back to that. Israel is known as your people. Jerusalem is known as the city of Yahweh. Yahweh's temple is there in Jerusalem. And so, because he, Daniel, cares most about the honor of Yahweh, about the reputation of the Most High, about the glory of God, Daniel intercedes for his people, asking God to restore them both physically and spiritually. You see the order of that? He cares most about God's glory, and that leads him to pray for the good of God's people. We can't miss that order and that relationship. Because Daniel knows that in that blessing of restoration, both physical and spiritual, God would be greatly glorified. And that's what Daniel's hungry for. So stop and think with me about how we might summarize Daniel's prayer for God's people. Take a look at this summary statement. In a spirit of repentance and confession, with an overriding concern for God's glory, His fame, His reputation, Daniel prays for the restoration of his people that God may be all in all. That God may be all in all. Again, that would have been the ultimate goal of restoring the temple, the exact focus of his prayer, right? Make your face shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. Why was he praying that? Because this would have been the outcome, forgiveness from and fellowship with God himself, that God might be all in all, every Israelite. Now, that final phrase there, that final phrase of my summary that you see there on the screen, that may sound familiar to you, that God may be all in all. You know where those words come from? Those words come from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-eight. And what's wonderful about 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-eight and that phrase, these words written to disciples of Jesus, fast forwarding several hundred years, many hundreds of years into the future from Daniel's day, in that verse, what's wonderful is that Paul, in that chapter, Paul is speaking here about a restoration as well. But he's speaking about an even greater restoration than what Daniel had in mind. Paul wrote about the restoration that would take place, that would be accomplished when all things are subjected to God. That is, when everything is placed in submission under His reign. And I mean everything. Way bigger than restoration of of one nation back to its homeland. Right, Way bigger than the, the, the redeeming of things that were in ruins, that were broken down, fields that had become fallow. Way bigger than that. This is the redeeming of all things. This is everything. Where not a king of Persia or a king of Babylon was concerned. This is submission and subjection to the king of heaven, to the king of the universe. That's what Paul is writing about. 
In that day, the whole universe will once again become the place where God dwells with His people. That, that future and that ultimate reality to which the, the ancient temple in Jerusalem pointed. What did the temple symbolize? It symbolized ultimately God's throne, His royal court. Right? Because we see the same motifs in the temple, physical temple, that we see, for example, in the book of the Revelation in terms of the throne of God and the presence of God. We see the same things there. So we know the temple was meant to be a visual representation of God dwelling or reigning on the earth. That will come to pass fully and finally in the new heavens and the new earth. That's what Paul's talking about here. That God may be all in all. In fact, if we went back to Daniel chapter 9 itself, Daniel 9 actually points us directly to this greater restoration. Daniel 9 does that itself. You may already know that the final section of this chapter, verses 20 through 27, you can skim over those verses. Daniel 9, verses 20 through 27. Those final verses describe a direct and a divine response to Daniel's prayer. Remember that most of the chapter is Daniel's prayer. Well, guess what? Heaven answers. There's a response from heaven. It's a response delivered by the angel Gabriel. Though Daniel was confessing and he was pleading with God in light of the fast approaching 70 years spoken of by the prophet Jeremiah. Just look at verse 2 of chapter 9. See in verse 2 of chapter 9? You'll see mention that Daniel was reading the book of Jeremiah. He saw that 70 years there and he knew that prophetic clock was getting close to expiring. And it motivates him to pray to God. It motivates him to pray about this restoration that God foretold as this seven years was coming to an end. Though he is confessing and pleading with God in light of that 70 years, Gabriel tells Daniel in chapter 9, verse 24, that actually 70 weeks, not years, 70 weeks are decreed for your people and your holy city. Oh, whoa, wait, what's this? 70 weeks? That is seven periods of seven, most likely 70 periods of seven years. Now, 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 it was not going to take 490 years to restore the people back to the land and rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. It wasn't going to take that long to do that. Yes, God would still do those things much sooner than that. But Daniel 9 speaks of far bigger plans that God has. Far bigger plans. Again, look at the, the whole verse. Chapter 9, verse 24, Daniel. Seventy weeks, Daniel, are decreed about your people and your holy city. Decreed for what reason? For what purpose? To finish the transgression. To put an end to sin. And to atone for iniquity. To bring in everlasting righteousness. To seal or seal up both vision and prophet. And to anoint a most holy place. 
Now, wait a minute. Some of this sounds really good. Some of this sounds really good. It sounds almost like the rededication of the temple with some of this language. But this language is way bigger than that. This language is like superlative, isn't it? It's like bring an end to sin. Bring an everlasting righteousness. Wow, that was never a guarantee of the temple before. What does this mean? What is he talking about here? Brothers and sisters, friends, when that prophetic clock expired, all of this was accomplished through something greater than the temple. Matthew chapter 12, verse 6. Something greater than the temple is here. Do you remember who said that? Jesus. Something greater than the temple is here. Matthew 12, 6. As we read, take a look on the screen here. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. But when Christ appeared, prophetic clock, right? Galatians says the fullness of time had come. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, read temple, not made with hands... That is, temple not of this creation. He, Jesus, entered once for all into the holy places. Not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing everlasting righteousness. That's not what it says though, right? Same thing though. Securing eternal redemption. Just as he announced to Mary in Luke chapter 1, we are living now in the very restoration the angel Gabriel announced to Daniel so long ago. We're living in that restoration as believers. Through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ secured an eternal redemption. A deliverance not just of the people of Israel geographically back to their homeland, but a deliverance spiritually for us for eternity to our heavenly Zion. To the presence of our God. To be with Him forever and ever. If you have embraced Christ as Lord, if you have embraced His finished work as perfectly sufficient, exactly what you needed, what all of us need, then you are experiencing in a radically full way, the very thing for which Daniel ultimately prayed in Daniel chapter 9. Forgiveness from and fellowship with God. You have it. How radically full is the restoration of Christ? So full that we are now the temple. God dwells in us. That's how full it is. That's how much bigger it is. I said it was bigger. It's that much bigger. But as those restored in Jesus, let's ask this. What do we learn from Daniel? Having, living right now in the fullness of Daniel's prayer answered. Right? And we know that God's completing this work in the new heavens and the new earth. We know it's coming one day, don't we? But living right now in this restoration, how should my prayers, how should our prayers be affected by this restoration? How can we learn from Daniel about praying for God's people? Well, well just, as we th- just as we saw, I think when you pray for the church, when you pray for this church, 
Not, I'm not just talking about individuals in the church. You can pray for a, a brother or sister in the church. We're talking about kind of backing up and praying for the church corporately, the church overall. When you pray for this church, pray passionately. Yes, pray passionately for our good, but do that as you pray ultimately for God's glory. Don't pray without keeping an eye on God's glory at all times. Keep that center, central to everything that you are praying. We have no true, we have no lasting good apart from that which glorifies God. And the greatest good way of grace can ever experience is when God is all in all. Do you believe that's true? Then pray to that end. Pray to that end. When God is all in all, that is when He is everything to every one of us. When He is everything to every single one of us. That is when God is most glorified among and through His people. Now, undoubtedly, in Daniel's day, there were many exiles praying. And they were praying very specific prayers for restoration to their land. Undoubtedly, they were praying for the restoration of their land. They were even praying for the restoration of the greatness of Israel, I'm guessing. And none of those are bad things to pray for. But if they were praying for those things without a spirit of repentance and confession, if they were praying for such things without a heart for the glory of God, such prayers would have, in the end, been out of alignment with what God has revealed to us truly matters most. And that is His name, His glory, His fame, His recognition, His reputation, that He receive all the worship and the praise and the adoration, that He is seen as priceless and incomparable, that His value and His excellencies shine through everything. Therefore, He gets the worship. That is what matters most. In the same way as those returning, those exiles, those waiting to return, I would encourage you, don't stop praying for circumstantial needs for this church. Don't stop praying for specific ministry goals of this church. None of those are bad things in any way. Those are good, good things. Keep praying for those. But if you are not, pray even more. If you are, pray even more. But start praying. Pray above all in a spirit of repentance and confession that God may be all in all among us. And so, be greatly magnified through us. In what ways, you may ask yourself, we should ask ourselves, in what ways do I need restoration this morning? When I think about God being all in all, where am I on that path? Where am I according to that metric? Is God my everything in every way? Sadly, no. Therefore, I need restoration. Where do we need restoration? 
as a church? In what ways do we need restoration that God might be everything in every single one of us? This is what Daniel was praying for. This is what Daniel's example leads us to. Let's pray or continue praying, renewed by Daniel's example, in terms of the priority of God's glory. For your name's sake, for your sake alone, Lord. For we are also called by his name, aren't we? Just like Daniel's people, we are called by his name. We are Christians. We are Christ ones. We carry with us the name of Christ in our confession. We wear it proudly, don't we? With joy that we can be Christians. Because we want everyone to see the greatness of Christ our King. We bear His name. When we pray regularly with an eye to His glory, brothers and sisters, when we pray in light of the restoration Jesus has made possible and the amazing, beautiful, prophetic fullness of all that we have, when we pray in that way, we will prosper as God's people. I guarantee it. We will prosper as His people. That is for certain. And one last encouragement for you. Look at verse 23 of Daniel 9. I love, as we're being encouraged to pray for God's people and pray with an eye to His glory in all things, I love how 9.23 confirms why Daniel was sent this angelic response. What does Gabriel say? For you are greatly loved. Daniel, you are greatly loved. You are greatly loved. And if Daniel was reassured by these words, how much more can we rest assured that our prayers will be heard? These prayers will be heard. Why? For you are greatly loved. You are greatly loved. You are greatly loved. You are greatly loved. loved. Aren't you? How do we know that? Because Jesus and His Gospel prove it. Each and every day it proves it to us. Would you join me in prayer in a spirit of repentance and confession, but also a spirit of thanksgiving? And just take a moment to ask God, God, give me this heart of Daniel to pray for Your people with an eye to Your glory. Take a moment, pray that to yourself, and I'll close this in just a moment.